Hello, everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to Scene Changes, uh, which is a, a series of panel discussions to help celebrate the 50 years of the National Theatre. What we're uh, aiming to do in this series is look back over that 50 years, uh, examine a little bit the present and extrapolate tentatively the future of various areas of theatre practice. And today we're thinking about theatre criticism. Everywhere you look, theatre criticism is in crisis. The tone was, uh, the note was struck uh, by the centenary conference of the Critics Circle about three weeks ago, I think, where an early panel talked about the, uh, the, the, the crisis in, in theatre criticism, drawing attention to the way in which the Independent on Sunday has just sacked all of its permanent uh, uh, critics. There is the ongoing crisis in, in print uh, journalism and the, the economic model for newspapers, uh, a bit of a a trend for knowledgeable, experienced theatre critics to be replaced by parliamentary sketch writers and so on. Um, and yet at the same time, everywhere you look, theatre criticism is flourishing. Particularly online, there is an unprecedented uh, international network of people writing about, commenting on, debating and discussing the theatre. So. There's clearly a lot to talk about. Um, my name's Dan Rebellato. To help me think about these things today, I have an expert panel uh, to, to discuss the, the state of theatre criticism. Uh, Michael Billington is, of course, one of our most distinguished theatre critics. Uh, he's been writing about theatre and reviewing theatre for The Guardian for over 40 years. He's also a well-regarded author of a number of books on figures such as Tom Stoppard, Alan Akebourne, Harold Pinter. Uh, and of course, he's most recently written uh, an engagingly personal overview of British theatre since the war, uh, State of the Nation. One of the peculiarities of British theatre, of course, is the, the great concentration of cultural activity in London uh, and a comparable neglect of the theatrical activity that goes on elsewhere. Somebody who, who's at the sharp end of our metropolitan bias uh, is Andrew Clarke who over 20 years has been arts editor for the East Anglian Daily Times. Catherine Love is one of the most important new critical voices. Um, uh, although she's written for print publications, her work has primarily been seen online, reviewing and blogging for her own website, and uh, particularly for Exeunt, a theatre site of which Catherine is uh, an editor, which is at the forefront of exploring how the online world might reconfigure the role of the critic. And finally, uh, Mark Shenton has a foot in both camps, writing for print publications. He's a critic for the Sunday Express uh, and is also a, an indefatigable tweeter and blogger. One of the first, uh, if I can say, traditional critics. <laughs> I don't know whether you would think of yourself in that way, but one of the first traditional critics to take advantage of the web as a means of drawing a wider public into that critical conversation. There you go. Um, <laughs> Michael, perhaps if I could start with you, because I. I guess you have the longest memory uh, of anyone here. Could you just... <laughs> that's <laughs> yes. that's a, a polite question. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'm the oldest. <laughs> yes, all right, you're the oldest. Um, could you just say something um, about what you remember being the state of criticism when you joined, perhaps when you started reading reviews, but certainly when you started writing them yourself? Well, gosh, uh, I actually started writing, believe it or not, in 1965 for The right. Times, uh, Deputy Irving Wardle. It was a very exclusive world, that's what I remember. It was male, almost 90% male, I would say. Um, an exclusive world, uh, almost everyone in it was white, middle class, Oxbridge, um, and they hung on to their jobs for a long time. So what's changed? Um, <laughs> but I'm quite serious, I mean, 
getting into that world as a young critic was, was hell, quite honestly. Uh, and I had to bum around in London for a long time, doing odd jobs. And then I made a small breakthrough. I got in a magazine called Plays and Players, um, where Peter Roberts, who's still around, um, gave me my first break, and then The Times, and so on. Um, it was a different world. I mean, A, as I say, exclusive, male, uh, entirely middle class, all white, Oxbridge. But also the means of um, writing was different, as you well know, because in those days there were two ways you got your copy into the paper. One was to go back to the newspaper, The Times and then The Guardian, in my case, and you'll sit at a thing called a typewriter, which <laughs> older folk among you may remember, uh, and you'd hammer out as in the front page. You know, you'll tap out your review, and then a sub would be sitting waiting to wrench the copy from your grasp. Um, or the other way, of course, was phoning copy through. I mean, that is something that no one ever does now, do they? I, I assume. No. No. Um, Deadline's gone. Deadline's gone, yeah. <laughs> and there aren't any copy takers left anywhere, I don't think. And what you'd have to do, either from a hotel room or a malfunctioning phone box on a railway station, you'd phone through this um, finely honed and chiselled piece of copy <laughs> to a deaf Scotsman at the other end <laughs> who would interrupt you with cries like, oh, fuck, is there much more of this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was taught a salutary lesson, though, never patronise the copy takers, because I was once dictating a review of Agamemnon down the line, and I was laboriously spelling every word, and a, and a rather languid voice at the other end said, oh, don't worry, I, I did my PhD in Greek drama. Thought, <laughs> what am I doing, you know, talking to them? Anyway, I mean, it was much more primitive in those days. Um, obviously, it's all been blown asunder, I mean, in very healthy ways. Um, I think the gender thing is very important, actually. Catherine could obviously speak about this more than I can, but I mean, I don't think there is any longer is there a presumption that critics necessarily are male. You know, uh, I think there's now a very interesting shift. And my view is the next generation of national critics, if I can use that word, will be predominantly female. I think that trend is already well underway. A lot of Sunday critics, as we know, on print newspapers are male. A lot of the websites are uh, run by uh, women. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd say that the balance is definitely evened out it's a evened lot out, more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think the Oxbridge thing may still linger a bit in the air, actually. The idea somehow, as at the National Theatre, you know, if you've got a degree in English at an old university, that gives you a sort of a start. Um, but it's a different world. It's a more democratic world. I think that's, the, that's the word I would use. What I've lived through is the democratisation of criticism. So it's no longer conducted by this rather sort of odd, self-perpetuating elite. Uh, the, the job is open, theoretically now, to anyone who has the technical know-how to set up their own website. Right. So what we've seen is a democratisation of, of criticism and of the response to criticism, as we know, because whereas people used to take time to write letters to you, they now are replying on the website to your reviews as soon as you've written them, more or less. Right. <coughs> we, still have, we still have no black or Asian critics on any... Uh, that's shamefully history. true, actually. Shamefully yeah. true. Yeah, still a very white middle class profession generally, um, which is something that you know is is quite worrying actually. So there is very little diversity really, apart from the gender balance evening out of it. Yes, um, no, I think it's, it's still quite limited. Mm. So Catherine, could I actually turn to you then? So when you started writing mm. reviews, which was five um, years ago, something like three years ago. Three years very, ago. I'm a real okay. newbie in relative terms. Could you? Um, could you say something about the kind of the state of criticism as you find, found it then and perhaps to compare with Michael's experience? Um, I mean, my experience, when I started out, I really did not know a great deal about, um, about the state of criticism. Um, 
I, I suppose I came to criticism first of all through newspapers, um, although I was aware of online criticism. Um, and my first step was just starting a blog. Um, when I first started out, I just thought I'm gonna give this a go. Um, and I suppose quite quickly, I came to acquaint myself with the current landscape um, in terms of criticism. Um, and I, d I felt it was it was quite easy to get my voice out there, but equally it does take it did take a while to actually feel as though anyone was <laughs> listening to that voice because it is there is a great democratization through blogs, um, but it's still you can feel like you're talking into a void to begin with. Um, so it was a, for the first year or so felt like quite a slow process of actually getting anything really heard. Um, but I suppose. I think that there is, there are lots more opportunities and opportunities to be very creative now with criticism in a way that there wasn't before. Um, so when I first started writing reviews, I was very much aping that 500 word um, star. Well, actually when I first started my blog, I wasn't using star ratings, but um, I was very much imitating the form that already existed. Whereas I think now I'm much more open to what can we use online criticism? How can we develop the form through online criticism? What are all the opportunities that are available? Um, and I think there are, as much as there's all this discussion about criticism being in crisis, I think there are as many opportunities as there are um, challenges at the moment. Great. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, Mark, maybe I could turn to you uh, on this, because obviously, I mean, some of the changes that we're talking about between the, 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 the state of criticism as, as Michael found it in the mid-60s and the way that we're experiencing it now, that change has accelerated, I would say, over the last 20 years, which, of course, is when you've been active. What would you say are the kind of the main things that have changed over that time? Well, the biggest change and the biggest challenge, I mean, yes, there are plenty more opportunities for young critics <coughs> than there ever were, because now you can, anybody can set themselves up and call themselves a critic just by setting up a blog. Uh, even your Facebook page is a, is a sort of criticism for, outlet for criticism. The big change is, is whether or not people are going to get paid for it. And I think for all the fact that, that uh, there are all these young people writing blogs and uh, contributing to websites, very few of them are getting any money for it at all. And the trouble is that in this free economy, in every sense, the, the trouble is it's undermining the game for everybody because uh, ultimately no one will get paid if, if, if people are giving it away for free. And I think that's, that this has been a bugbear of mine and, and it, it's um, exemplified by Huffington Post which sold itself for $325 million to AOL and doesn't pay a dime to any of its contributors. Um, but if people are willing to give it away, why? of course the publishers are only too happy to accept it um, and will continue to accept it. So my, my, my feeling is that in the long run we're, we're, we're doomed. Um, truly doomed, um, <laughs> because there will be no money left at, at the end of the day to, 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 to sustain a, a career in it. I have sustained a career, a full-time career, since I gave up a full-time job ten years ago. I think the way the way to do to, to for, for future critics to operate will be to have a day job um, as a particularly academics, uh, accountants, uh, lawyers, people who who have uh, ability to write perhaps, mm -hmm. um, but don't need to get paid for it. Um, uh, just last week, Philip Henshaw uh, was, was talking in The Guardian, there was a Guardian feature about the number of times you get asked to write introductions, even, even as a, as a well-known author, um, and you know, without any offer of payment. And then, in, the, in this case, it was a Cambridge professor who was asking him to write an introduction to his book and wouldn't pay him to do so. And then, um, and then when, 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 when he refused to do it, he wasn't going to get paid, he was accused of being ungracious. So he was being insulted by, this, by the <laughs> professor who refused to pay him. Of course, the professor doesn't need an income because he's, got, he's getting an income from the university. Um, an academic who's already working for a university doesn't need to get paid for criticism because they're, they're, it's an outlet for them. 
Yeah, so. absolutely. Mm -hmm. I know that well. Um, <laughs> uh, Andrew, if I could uh, uh, ask you, obviously it's, it is, it's a something of a perennial um, worry that uh, theatre outside London gets wildly disproportionately poorly covered by yeah. the supposedly national press. But uh, you, as I say, you've been arts editor for 20 years. Is, that, is there a kind of direction of travel? Has it got better? Has it got worse? Has it fluctuated in that time? Um, well, I c speaking for, for, my, for my neck of the woods, which is sort of broad, broadly East, East Anglia, I mean, yes, it has got better, you know, but I think it's for certain key productions, certain key shows. I mean, in, in in my neck of the woods, we've got, a th uh, we've got um, High Tide up at Halesworth, which is now a major new writing festival. Mm. And people like, Michael, you've been up for that. And yep. Mark, I've you, you've um, yeah. So f for specific events, for specific plays, um, people will make the journey. But again, it's a question of time. It's how, I mean, we're only an hour from London, mm. and it is difficult to get critics, you know, just an hour's train journey. Mm. So, you know, if you're any further north than that, I think you must be sort of howling in the wind. But having said that, I mean, you were talking about the, the way that um, theatre has expanded. I think that the fact is there's a lot of good work that is actually being made in the regions, mm. which are now going out on tour, and then will come back into London. I mean, we're seeing that with High Tide. Both the Woolsey and the Mercury uh, in the, you know, have a long history of doing new shows, encouraging new writers sending them out, they get refined down, and then they come into places like Soho and what have you. Mm. Uh, maybe this is something that everyone could talk to a little. I mean, is, this, is it purely economics that, that means that the critics will have to cover so much that's happening in London that it's quite hard to, to get out of London? Or why aren't there more regional correspondents? It's time and expense, I think. I mean, time is a big issue. If you're trying to earn a living working by day to write the stuff, um, actually traveling four hours to, to, to a regional production you know, costs you money, but you're not being paid to do. Mm. But also, more, more than that, um, uh, it's very hard to get expenses um, on, on to, to, to travel to um, uh, the regions. Quite often, um, with, uh, with regional theatres, if they want me to come, they have to pay for the train ticket. Um, and and, and that, that's a huge issue now. Right. There is a certain durability, though, if I may say so, to regional yeah. coverage. I mean, I only speak for The Guardian, where, yeah. I mean, I'm just today going my third trip out of London this week. Lynn Gardner is assiduous in traveling yeah. out of London. Alfred Hickling is very good, although based in York, at covering as much yeah. as possible, except Mark Fisher in Scotland. Yeah. I mean, we, are, we very consciously try to address this issue. Yeah. And if anything, at The Guardian, on our reviews page, I think there's a sort of wariness of a metropolitan bias, actually. Mm. And quite often the lead review is from non-London. I'm not, I'm not saying we I have to say, The Guardian is really good, but... <laughs> yeah, but I think yeah. The Times also... Also tries to be as, yeah. you know, Libby Purvis was, again, zealous in travelling yeah. up and down the length of the country yeah. to see theatre. I think natural papers are trying mm -hmm. to correct the metropolitan bias as much as possible. And I'm going to Birmingham tonight. So right, yes. there we are. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> That's the halos on this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Obviously, uh, Mark was uh, a prophet of doom um, here, thinking about the, the future of, uh, of the press. Well, criticism will survive, absolutely. Right. It will survive well, for free. But actually, that's the, the question I've got is, about, is actually about paper. Um, that, you know, it is, it's widely said, I don't know whether it's true, but it's widely said that in 10 years' time, we'd be, it's unlikely we're going to have more than a couple of, of newsprint papers and that everything will be online. Will you miss it if that happens? 
Yes. Terribly. Can I just say, 10 years ago, people were saying exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, <laughs> I would like to speak... I, I understand your point about the economics of doom. I take that entirely. I would like to speak up for the tenacity of print, actually. It's been around a long time. It's not going to be that easy, I think, for it to disappear either. Um, and I mean, it's that a very interesting, informative Guardian meeting the other day where we were addressed by Alan Rusbridger and Andrew Miller, the chief executive, and they talked about their commitment to the printed version of the paper, mm -hmm. while at the same time expanding the online coverage, you know, globally. I mean, they're very proud of that. But at the same time, there was an absolute commitment to keeping the Guardian going as a printed newspaper mm -hmm. and to keeping criticism as part of that as well. And I don't know, I, maybe it's my generation, because I grew up, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of print, as it were. I grew up with inky fingers. Um, I still believe there is some uh, instinct in a lot of people to have the constancy of the printed paper, as well as the advantages of the online coverage. What I'm saying is, I think there'll be coexistence between the two. And also, we're getting to a phase, gradually, I think, where um, the online editions are becoming economically self-sustaining or even profitable, actually, which will allow the print edition to carry on. So I don't think it's going to happen and tomorrow. I, and, I, and I think free papers, uh, the, the Metro standard model, will actually help sustain uh, a habit for reading newspapers, mm. which, is, which is useful. It's a pity they're not better, but um, <laughs> it, it, they, they, they will sustain the habit. I mean, it's all about choice. I think that that's the buzzword of the age. So I think that the idea is that, you know, for those who want it in print, it will be in print, and I suspect it might be free print. Mm. And for those who want it electronically, it will be available electronically. And of course, as elect you know, the electronic world develops, you're going to have all sorts of different, I mean, what we now view as a Kindle, I'm sure, will be sort of regarded as, you know, in less than 10 years, some sort of outdated, outdated antique because you can summon up all sorts and you can design, I would imagine, a bespoke electronic publication and you can fill it how you want. Mm. I mean, Catherine, you must have a different perspective on this. Um, I mean, yeah, for me, I don't really... I'm not sh I, I wouldn't want to make any prediction about whether newspapers will be around. I certainly think that um, there's, I'm worried about the future of criticism in, in newspapers. I'm not sure whether there will be regular arts criticism, arts journalism um, continuing in newspapers for that much longer. But um, I suppose personally I'm much more um, invested in, in seeing what we can do online and how we might find new models um, mm. to, to sort of replace or well, maybe not replace or at least Conference. exist alongside the current models um, and I think we have to be forward-looking about that. Um, I think we can't sort of bury our heads in the sand and hope that, that those existing models will somehow be revived. Um, so, yeah, I'm much more interested in exploring those online possibilities than I am in sort of trying to cling on to existing models. I mean, there is it, one of the things. I mean, sometimes when I've uh, I've done research on theatre in the 1950s, for example, you get the, the files out, you get the reviews, and always I'm surprised. I mean, my jaw hits the floor when you see how much space people had. You know, two or three columns <laughs> to write about a new play. Now, that clearly is something that the newsprint is never going to bring back. It's not only the space that's changed. I would say another thing has changed about theatre, and that's it. it there was an um, understood primacy of theatre amongst the other arts. Thinking back to Sunday newspapers, of the 50s, right. you know, the Tyne and Hobson era, their columns would always lead the arts coverage, and film and uh, visual art and ballet and everything else would, would be subsidiary to theatre. That was partly because of the strength of those two writers, but I think that has changed. Again, democratisation. Right. Theatre now has to fight, doesn't it, with popular music, films, television, all the other arts, for space. Um, and you're quite right. 
the space itself per review has, yeah. has considerably, considerably lessened. Um, it's a fight. I think there's one thing we don't talk enough about, though, and it goes back to what Catherine was just saying about new models, and I'd like to hear more about, quotes what the new models are. Because I think there's a bottom line in criticism which we never really discuss, and it's not about the means of transmission, it's about the quality of the writing. Yeah. And criticism, I believe, will survive mm. if the writing has sufficient clarity, wit, pertinence, whatever words you want to use, entertainment value, to engage people. And that seems to me what our future depends upon, as well as on the survival of the means of um, transmission. But just actually, actually, what, what, are the, what are the new models? You know, I, Actually, I was going to say in the democratisation of criticism, the fact that there are so many voices out there, there's more noise than ever. Yes. So actually, critics are becoming more important, not less important, because mm -hmm. the, people need to turn to authoritative voices that they believe in and trust, rather than... Yeah. When, you've got, when, you've got, when you enter a, a Google search for something and it brings up 100 reviews, which ones are you going to read? You, you'll go to the tried and tested, the, the names that you know. And mm -hmm. it, there's an opportunity for other people to establish their, their names in that world. I think it is still possible to build up, for people to build up authority as individuals writing online based on the, um, the quality of their writing, the quality of their knowledge and their insight, um, the kind of the potentially the, the um, distinctive perspectives that they bring that, might, that you might not get elsewhere. Um, I think that in terms of a, sort of perspective, a different perspective, perhaps a different knowledge base, that's where, where perhaps online criticism can carve out its own, uh, carve its own path uh, separately to, to the traditional print journalism, um, which is obviously now also moving online. Um, talking about not new models, yes. uh, that's the big question because I don't think we ha we've reached, uh, I think we're still trying out a lot of models at the moment, certainly. Uh, in terms of making it sustainable and allowing, uh, uh, giving critics an income from from their criticism, uh, and what I think one of the one thing that a lot of online um, critics are having to move towards now is working more with institutions, and obviously there is there are certain difficulties there in terms of still uh, maintaining a certain critical distance and being a, being able to write about something. I don't like the word objectively because I think that no critic can ever be purely objective it's um what do you mean by working with institutions um so there are lots there are now opportunities for sort of writers in residence for um for, so for critics to work in partnership perhaps not even just with one institution with groups of institutions to um to be able to cover their work in different ways and perhaps enter into more of a conversation with those artists it's a very different model and it's not it doesn't suit the criticism as it exists now and so it's not not criticism in terms of necessarily a 500-word review with a star rating, mm -hmm. but a different kind of critical model. And I think that will never replace the review, reviews as they exist now, both uh, online and in print, but that's a potential new model to pursue. Um, and, and people are exploring those possibilities at the moment. Um, but that seems like one way, and perhaps it could be made a little more financially sustainable. Uh, but, but of course, there are lots of... Just yeah. specifically on that, because mm -hmm. you, you, you functioned as a sort of embedded critic, didn't you, uh, in so Anthony Nielsen's most recent show at the yes. Royal Court. I mean, just say a little bit about what was that like to do? Because it, in the past, critics mm -hmm. have tended to, you know, they stick together at the press night and they mm -hmm. don't talk to anybody in the cast and there's, they keep a lot of distinction. Yeah. So was that an odd experience um, for you? It was slightly odd. I mean, it, again, it was... It, 
because it wasn't a normal, um, it wasn't a standard uh, process anyway, it was more of a workshop process than a, uh, so there wasn't a final production at the end, it was working, Anthony Nielsen was working with a group of writers um, and then at the end of two weeks there were a series of short performances. Um, so it wasn't a, a standard rehearsal process. But um, I found that really, really fascinating, and that's the second time I'd been in a rehearsal room environment, because um, I was invited into a rehearsal room about a year pre uh, prior to that. Um, and I think that it is really valuable for a critic to gain that insight and to, um, to just enter into... I, I felt like I was entering into more of a dialogue with the work, um, but I, th well, I, think I think that reviews also do enter a certain dialogue with the work, but it was just in a, a different way. Um, and what I wrote about that was obviously very different than what I would have written had I just gone and seen the final performance and I was completely <coughs> transparent about that. I think that being transparent about your position as a critic is, is absolutely vital. Um, and I, you know, as I think embedded criticism is a really exciting form if as long as we kind of address how that might be problematic as well. Is it more, more of a feature, is it, R rather than a, than, a, than a critic? I sorry, more of a, uh, as in what uh, would be a feature, feature in a yeah, paper. Yeah. yeah, I suppose it's an extension of that, um, of what's not a new model of, of, you know, of a critic going, or a journalist going in, seeing some of the rehearsal process in order to write a feature, but it's just, there's slightly more um, depth to it, as in you tend to be spending longer with a process, um, mm -hmm. and rather than just going into a couple of rehearsals and then, then writing a feature. Um, and it's... I suppose just slight, again, slightly more in depth than a feature would be, and much more about the process. So it's just, it's just thinking about theatre as process rather than as final performance. But don't we need a new word for whatever that role is? Because it, it's, it, as you described, it seems to be akin to the kind of thing, say, that Kenneth Tynan did when he was a dramaturg at the mm -hmm. National Theatre. You know, he was yeah. the he was the house critic. He was the production's first critic, yeah. who would actually watch the process of rehearsals and then would give uh, sort of you know, some useful information and ideas to the director. Yeah. That seems to be a very different role from the kind of role we traditionally yeah. occupy, mm -hmm. I'm not which is that, that of independent. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. independent. It's also unsustainable as a, as a model for, for covering the waterfront because we have between 25 mm -hmm. and 30 shows a week open in, in, in London and, the country, and around the country to which, which we could potentially cover. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit crazy and I go to roughly six or seven of those a week. Most of my colleagues go to two or three, sometimes four. Um, but, but if we were doing embedded criticism, following a production, there's no time. You'd be covering one show, uh, one or two shows a month, if I mean, that. But I'm not, I'm not suggesting that a critic yeah. would follow every production in that no, way, no. but it's just one potential model and something that I think can quite, that can sit <laughs> alongside um, yeah. criticism as it exists And now, somebody has to pay for it, which obviously in, yeah. in, the, in this case is the, the, the companies are hopefully paying for it. Mm. But, but as their grants erode, it's the one bit that they can possibly lose. Then they, they, they lose that. that yeah. Why I pay for a critic to, yeah. to the landscape. pay for an actor instead? Yeah, the landscape is definitely changing. And I think there was the survey, was it last week or the week before, about it revealed the way that theatre audiences have changed. They've got broader, they've got younger. younger. Yeah. And I mean, if you can believe the results, I mean, that, that again will have an effect on who's reading what and where they're reading and how they're reading and what they actually need from the coverage. Mm. And so I think instead of, you know, people have an idea of the theatre audience, but actually there's probably the truth has always been, certainly since, the, shall we say, the early 60s, since Osborne and Tony Richardson and the broadening out of the theatre then and that has carried on, is the fact you've got dozens of different audiences, mm -hmm. but they all sort of overlap with one another. Mm. And so you've got, you know, for certain plays and certain authors and 
productions, you've got three or four audiences all coming because they all overlap in interest. Mm. But I think we live in a world now of niches. Mm. And micro I think, worlds. Yes, mm. micro worlds. And I think the, the trick is, is you know, e each micro world has an audience. And the idea is, is to try and tempt as many and get as many overlaps. And I think, you know, people now, choice, as I said earlier, is the buzzword. Mm. And so you, you're, you're getting your coverage, you're getting your papers or you're reading what you want to find out about and you're narrowing it down all the time. Mm -hmm. I think the secret is to somehow stumble across something new. And, and that was the joy of national newspapers is yeah. that people might be reading at this, I mean every now and then I stumble across the sports page for heaven's sake. <laughs> I do every now and then. But um, it, it, it's, they still uh, exist. <laughs> but, but, but you know a, a general reader might stumble across a review. Um, and, and, and be interested in it as a result, yeah. which you don't if you, if you inhabit your little micro world of, well, this is of, exactly, of, of only yeah. uh, experimental theatre yeah. or only uh, site-specific mm. theatre, and you just go to that, that's, that, that's the 5,000 people. Well, you but never discover awesome. accidentally <coughs> something new, do you? But there's something different, isn't there, in, the, in what the, the online world and the blogosphere and so on is able to provide, because 50 years ago, you might stumble over a, a review, that something that Kenneth Tynan wrote, you might well go and see it, but then what would you do? You wouldn't necessarily respond. If you hated the show yeah. that Kenneth Tynan said was so brilliant, uh, you just presumably you would say, I went to see that, look back in anger, it wasn't that good. Um, <laughs> but, but you might write now, a letter in green ink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, now I? there's a real possibility that you can have your comment underneath. Can I, can I quickly dispel, I think, which is a bit of a myth, that until the blogosphere arose, readers were passive and inert okay. creatures. They were not. I swear, I swear, the moment I started writing for The Guardian, I was in, instantly deluged with letters of mm. sometimes complaint, <coughs> abuse, correction, information. <laughs> Once in a hundred, you know, they might say, well done, but... You know, it was, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was like it is now, except there was less of it, if you see what I mean, and it took longer because the post took longer. But the idea that people did not react to criticism, and they only start to react because it's now easy to do so, I think is not true. Maybe Guardian readers are an unusual lot, I suspect not. You know, they, they were highly articulate, highly um, informed. I mean, just briefly, I remember making the stupidest comment, one of the many stupid comments I've made in my life. An, an early show I reviewed was a one-man show about Lord Byron, and I said it was as, it was as dull as a WEA extension lecture on a wet Friday night in Macclesfield. This was the stupidest thing you'd possibly say in the Manchester Guardian, you know, so then was. <laughs> Macclesfield rose as one man I got, and woman. I got thousands of letters and I went to give a lecture on a Friday night in Macclesfield <laughs> as a penance. And I, I would cite that as proof that, you know, readers have always been, I think, volatile. Now, as rightly you say, you know, mm. they can be volatile instantly. But it's always been out there, that reaction, that tension between the critic and the reader. And it's part of what makes the job exciting. But that, uh, I mean, I accept, of course, that people can write, could write you letters. Mm. But that's not a public conversation, is it? Whereas no. now the conversation really is conducted in public. And uh, the other thing is, well, the blogosphere doesn't have to have quite the overnight um, review. So actually, there's a sense, very often, I think there's some very interesting stuff that I read on theatre blogs where people are reviewing the production, but also commenting on other reviews and 
and, and sustaining a much broader conversation. And, and that is surely substantially different from the way it was. Absolutely. We're, the, we're, we're no longer at the, the start of the conversation. We're, we're only the start of the conversation. Yeah. We're not the entire conversation. Yeah. It continues instantaneously also via Twitter. I mean, after a first night, I always, uh, now I go home and I, the first things I do is I, I, I tweet. So I, it's no longer an overnight review. It's an instant same night mm. review. Um, and, and there's a lot of comeback from that immediately, sometimes from the, the, the actors and the creative teams themselves. Yes. So, so it puts you in direct contact with, with people you, who never used to contact you before. And of course, uh, sorry, Catherine, you were going to say. No, I was just going to say it does, it does um, allow a much uh, broader public conversation. I, I think the, the discussion between critics is something that I find very exciting. Um, and I think that... I mean, I, I mentioned I, this briefly at the Critics Circle conference that I think we do have to be wary that we don't just end up talking to, our, to ourselves and not to anyone else um, because there is a danger of that conversation becoming quite um, closed off. And, but actually, at its best, I think that kind of discussion can be uh, sort of a springboard for a wider conversation. And by seeing critics uh, in discussion with one another, I feel as though that opens up a, a bigger conversation, and I think it's really healthy to um, to continue to cultivate discussion around theatre. Mm. Could I just pick up on that another danger, which I see apart from the sort of talking to ourselves, and it's, it's again, it's not a danger people ever like to articulate, and that is the danger of because of the blogosphere playing it a bit safe, mm. um, because we know from experience that if you come up with an extreme opinion, i.e., you like something that everyone else detests or vice versa, <laughs> you know that's going to excite the bloggers and you know there'll be a deluge of you know, complaint and abuse and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I live with this and I'm happy to live with this, but I sometimes think if you wanted a quiet life, you know, you would just take the, the consensual line on shows. But the moment you stand up and say you don't like the Book of Mormon, you know, you know there's going to be <laughs> this time. And I would just say that some of the great print reviews of our lifetimes have been mm -hmm. those that have stood against the majority, you know. Oh, to have written Harold Hobson's review of the birthday party, right, you know, which mm. took the line that no one else was taking. Mm. I mean, if Harold had done that today, he again would have been probably deluged with abuse. But mm. do you see what I'm saying? There's a slight, slight lurking danger, it seems to me, of us taking whatever may be the obvious line on, on certain things. But some, some, some of our colleagues do take the contrary view in order to incite that. Well, I was going to say. Well, ah, that, they actually the do that deliberately. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, you stumble, if it happens accidentally, fair enough. But, yes. but some, there are a couple who do it deliberately. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but and of course, editors love that, don't they? Yes. Because all the traffic on the website well, is suddenly, yeah. you know, yes. increased tenfold. That's true. So, you know, they're actually urging you to, you know, be contrary. I think it comes down to, to the critic, and I think you know a good critic will will stand by their opinion and 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 won't, and won't either be um, won't either feel the need to play safe or to say something that's just purely controversial. So I think that comes down to the critics of individual choice, and I hope that most critics would sort of stand by their opinion um, despite that. And actually, it's it's really exciting if we can disagree about things and then talk about why we disagree and sort of continue that conversation. Well, it goes back to first principles of being a critic. It's, you know, rule one, be honest. You know, I mean, the light princess here last week got everything from one star to five star again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, 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 there, was no, there was no consensus at all. No. It, it, it was quite interesting, wasn't it, about a, about a month ago when the, on the, the Royal Court's Twitter feed, they retweeted a link to Quentin Letts' one-star review <laughs> of the ritual slaughter of George Nostromus. Uh, 
as a kind of badge of, if Quentin Letts hates it, you're probably going <laughs> to like it. Um, you may as well come and see it. Okay, I just want to think about the democratic side of this, because it, I suppose in some, it could look like a, a great opening up of a democratic conversation. Um, but I, I was thinking, and stay with me on this, I was thinking about the, uh, the end of uh, Plato's Republic, where he says that the, that the definition of democracy is a world in which everybody's opinion is worth the same thing. And, uh, and, you know, Michael, I don't know if you read the comments after your reviews. I hope you don't, <laughs> because... <laughs> oh, I do regularly. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, you know, there's uh, Graham Lenehan, the great comedy writer, said, don't read the bottom half of the internet. And actually, there is that sense, isn't there, that sometimes you're just, you're opening up, not a real conversation at all, you're just opening up an opportunity for people to say, you're a, a douche, and <laughs> that's basically... I hate you, and this is a stupid <laughs> review. And is that is that do we gain anything really from that? That's maybe just a comment for from everyone. Oh, or no, Mark. Well, Mark, what's your view? We'll um, just get well, just don't read your mentions column either on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is it is terribly dangerous, but but you still have to. If your opinion is worth anything, you just have to be go with what your own opinion is. Um, and yeah, we do have a lot of there's a lot of mob rule on the internet, um, as we've as lots of people have discovered. Um, and and it's difficult to tune it out. But 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 I think we have to to maintain some independence. Okay. Yes, I mean at the Guardian, we are, we are uh, encouraged to quotes join the conversation. Right. So therefore, we are ab mm. absolutely not encouraged. It's a weak word. We are. Positively, it is probably suggested, you know, <laughs> join the thread and engage with the readers as much as possible. A suggestion. That's something <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, Andrew? Well, yeah, I, I would agree, and I, I would slightly qualify that by saying you engage with the people who have interesting things to say. Right. And so, you know, you sort of then develop, you know, lines of inquiry which hopefully are entertaining to the reader. Right. I say engage engage with people who seem to want to engage perhaps rather than say I, I would think that's maybe a better way of putting it and saying engage with the comments that are interesting but I think there's a difference between someone it's quite clear the intent of a comment if someone's just wanting to hurl abuse and, and is not actually wanting to engage in a conversation although um, I don't think that a, a hostile response is necessarily one that we should ignore and um, I'm just thinking of a recent review that uh, Maddie Costa wrote in The Guardian of um, the Fu Manchu uh, complex. And she had a really, really fascinating, dif like really difficult discussion, but a very fascinating discussion with the writer of that play. Uh, she'd given it a, a very negative review, but they ended up, it went well beyond the comments thread on The Guardian and that Maddie carried it onto her blog, which again is a brilliant example of how that conversation can continue online. Although actually, um, the writer was, you know, of understandably quite upset, and it, it did get quite, um, quite sort of. Uh, it was a quite. An, there was a lot of anger in those responses, but I think Mad. And it, I don't know how how valuable that conversation was eventually because it, the, there were um, there were ways in which it didn't didn't add valuably add to the overall discussion. But um, but I think it was really great that Maddie actually did respond, and it did, and it opened up. Um, I think that asked a, lot, asked a lot of questions about what is the critic's role and what is the critic's, how, how should critics and artists be engaging in that kind of dialogue. It means, I think, as a critic, you have to handle it very carefully. Um, but, yeah, so I think hostility is not necessarily, hmm. doesn't necessarily have to end the conversation because then the writer was, in, was interested in getting engaged once Maddie had opened that up. Yeah, it's more than just abuse. You actually, mm. you've got a dialogue going. Yeah. I think that's the important thing. I mean, it's all, I, say, it's, it, 
I think uh, on some level it's debatable about how helpful that some of that dialogue was, but I think it's really important that it was opened up in the first place. Okay, I'm afraid we, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. I'm very sorry about that. But uh, can I ask you to join me in thanking Michael, Andrew, <laughs> Catherine and Mark?